Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson, and you are listening to New Radio Media. And we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, it's 844 844- Nine 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 two four nine. That's eight four four nine 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 two four nine. And I actually couldn't see if Angel was in the room, but he is there. And you can contact us by email. Let's talk to Red Gmail. Lots of stuff happening today. Um, We again will have an international guest, just not as far as the last couple. We will be going to Toronto, and we'll talk to a professor, writer, publisher, all involved in Jewish fiction, which I guess we have to find out what Jewish fiction actually is. And uh, lots of good topics today to talk about. We're at the end of the book of Exodus. Um, we got to wrap up and maybe give a quick review or an overview of what happened throughout Exodus. We got to talk about the final building of the Mishkan for the fifth week. And we got to do an accounting of all the gold and silver and copper that was collected. But before we get rolling, um, there was something great that happened in school today. And if Kelsey has that video, here it comes. I have no idea what the sound is. So let me tell you what you're watching, because the sound won't be so good. This is a gym with a wall halfway down with actually two different schools that are getting together to dance. Today is the first of the month of the month of Adar, which is the last month in the Jewish calendar. That is the month of the Purim holiday, and it is a happy, fun, dancing month. So there happens to be two schools, the school I'm in in my neighborhood, And I see my logo. There we go. Okay, we're good. Excellent. That was fantastic. Um, So I wanted to give you a little taste. Um, I don't know where this started. There's two schools. One is called the Farber School. One is where I I am, Yeshiva Stachy Torah. You didn't see me because I'm the video guy. And um, somehow, I don't know, 15 years ago, um, the Farber School, then it was called Akiva, would send their high school down the block and they would come dance with our boys. Now, for them, it's a high school. We don't have a boys' high school. And the schools have some different uh, um, theology, maybe. Theology is the wrong word, but uh, there's different. There are some, I don't want to say nuances. There are things that are different about the level of education, um, the bent, uh, more Zionist, less Zionist. But they're all Jewish kids. They're all good kids, and they come, and we have a great time. We get all our little kids out, and everybody dances and and gets together. We have a great time. Mind you, my class is busy asking me, are we going to lose recess time because of this? But um, in any case, we had a great time. It happens every year at this time of the year, and it's like a good feeling getting into all the holiday spirits. And if we have time... We will get into the Purim holiday. Um, But before we even go there, we talk about, you know, it's a happy time. It's a good time. So I needed some good music. So, Tony, you got my music? Let's play that. I'll just talk over it just to get into the spirit of some fascinating stuff we got to talk about. If it's working. I could talk anyways. So here we go. Here we go. Happy music. 
So, Purim time, happy time, thinking time, but even in happy, there's something very important in this week's Torah portion that we really, really got to think about. And that is, okay, now my music will fade down before it gets me all confused, but um, a very interesting thing happens at the beginning of this week's Torah portion. Moses is giving an accounting of the gold, silver, and copper that was collected. Again, the silver, for the most part, is just a collection of a, a half coin per person. The gold, we talked about the gold and the copper. And he has to say how many, whatever the, the, the biblical weight is, not so important for us, but whatever that weight is, he has to give an accounting. So think about it for a second. Moses is the leader. He's talking to God. He gives you the directions of, of how to build the Mishkan. And imagine you were to go over to Moses and say, Moses, you know, I, I donated some gold. I would like to know, was all the gold used? How much of it was used? How was the gold used? Same with the silver, same with the copper. That could be an extremely insulting question. And some would say even an inappropriate question. You know, if you're running an organization... And one of your donors comes over and says, could you please give me a written um, explanation of how all my money is being used? Some people take a step back if they're charity collectors and they say, uh, you don't trust me. That's usually like the first word out of their mind, right? Out of their mouth, right? You don't trust me? You, 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 are you accusing me of anything? So the Torah portion is teaching us this week that if you're involved in any kind of charitable organization, you have to be open. As people have a right to know, first of all, how you're using the money, they're not specifically or at all questioning if you're honest or not honest. There is a concept. The Hebrew is really beautiful. It says, mehashem which literally means you need to be clean, slash innocent before God and before Israel, which means that you don't get to walk around and say, you got a problem? Go talk to God. God, God knows what, that I'm an honest person. That doesn't fly. You, you, you have to show that you are above suspicion. You have to give an exact accounting. Therefore, Moses has to give an accounting of the gold and silver and copper that came in. So this week, different things were happening in my life. And it was really, this Torah portion was like the perfect lesson. This, this whole idea, this concept of being clean and innocent. And that is, we all do stuff. We all, we all have our level of what we believe is, is honest and straight and correct and the way we should act, whatever religion, whatever you do, whoever you represent, um, we always feel, and even parents, parents with children, we hopefully believe that everything we're doing is correct and we have our reasons for doing things and it's always possible, maybe unlikely for all of us, but certainly always possible that we're making a mistake, that we are for sure, we're convinced that what we're doing is perfect. We are working, we're doing God's work, and we know that what we're doing is honest and clean and acceptable. And if someone were to accuse us of uh, things being a little shady, things being a little gray, 
we could come up with a hundred examples. You're, you're in the accounting office and you fudge some numbers because the ultimate purpose, um, it's okay. Because ultimately we're doing good stuff, so these things may be not so legal. doesn't matter because the end goal is all that we care about. So that's the point, I believe, of this whole accounting. And that is that we don't get to go ahead and fudge the numbers and then hide behind that, well, I'm doing it to help the organization. I mean, again, fudging the numbers is an example. We could find all kinds of examples. A person might be in an inappropriate place for what he represents. And his answer is, well, I'm helping the organization. And if I go to this place, it will be good for the organization, even if the person doesn't belong there. And he doesn't get to say that, uh, that uh, God knows that I'm doing it for the school, for the organization, for the charity. Therefore, even though maybe it's inappropriate, I'm allowed to do it anyways. That's not acceptable. That's exactly what the Torah portion is coming to say, that we all have to give an accounting. We all have to explain why we're doing stuff. And if people come and question, so first we have to be open-minded. We, we, can, we can tell them straight, look, the reason I'm doing ABC is because I think it's good for the organization. And these people, certainly board members, um, who usually, hopefully, have the organization's best interest in mind can say, look, your idea is fantastic, your, your motivation is beautiful, but it's not the picture we want to send out. So therefore, we're, we're the, whatever project, idea, concept, we're letting it come to a screeching halt. That's not how we do business. And, and whoever you are, again, parents can be the same. We think this is the best way to raise children. And someone will come to us and say, what are you doing? And you say, none of your business. I know how to raise my kids. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Are you willing to be honest and take a step back and say, maybe it's not such a good idea. Maybe people look at me the wrong way. Maybe my children look at me the wrong way. So, again, in this week's Torah portion, this lesson of being clean and innocent before God and before Israel, before Israel means that you've got to be willing to listen to other people. You've got to be accountable if you're making a mistake. So just step back. Generally speaking, if you go ahead and you thought you had a brilliant idea, but the board of your organization feels it's not appropriate, so they're not going to be angry at you. They just want you to follow their direction. All you were doing was trying to help. So you say to them, honestly, I thought this was a good idea. If it's not a good idea, I'm done. We'll figure out another way to get whatever project idea we're working on. This one is done. There's a thousand ideas out there, probably more. Just because one doesn't work does not mean that was the only way to get things across. So that was just, again, this concept. Even, even Moses has to give an accounting for um, what he did, his collecting and his building and his responsibility. And if Moses has to give an accounting and show everything is above board, we certainly can't be any less than Moses. Okay, so that was something that I very much wanted to talk about. Hopefully the message came across as clear as I could manage it. Um, but let's get into a few other topics on the Torah portion. I have so many that I'm trying to touch. I don't know which one to pick first. But here's an interesting one for you. So the entire um, 
Mishkan Tabernacle is re- rebuilt is built in this Torah portion. So first things first, you need to know um, the uh, there's different versions of it, but whether the Levite tribe tried to build it and were unsuccessful. Or the contractors like Bitzalel and the wise men that were building it, they tried to get it built. No one could get it built. And if you check last year's show on around some of these Torah portions, we had an engineer in here and we discussed that this tabernacle would not work. Um, if you're an engineer and you look at how it was built, it can't stand. It would collapse upon itself. The whole thing would—even the setting up is almost impossible or impossible. So God tells Moses— he says, Moses, you build it yourself. Because Moses very much wanted to be involved. But in truth, Moses taught them what to do, but was not involved in the building of the tabernacle at all. He wanted to, he wanted to be involved. God says, you'll be involved. You'll build it the first time. And after you build it the first time, then everybody else will be able to build it after you. That's the setup. Obviously, it's miraculous. Fine. There's a lot of miraculous things taking place in the, in the Torah. So Moses is going to build it. He says, God, come on. I mean, we're talking about beams that are 20 feet long, uh, 2 feet wide, uh, 3 feet thick. I mean, come on. You're not budging that. That's ridiculous. Stand it up, and while that one's standing, get the next one next to it, and then connect them together, and hope they don't fall. I mean, come on. So God says, Moses, you look like you're doing it. You put in whatever effort you have, and God says, I'll take care of the rest. Which is an interesting concept. Do we put an effort and God does the rest? Or no, we put an effort and God does everything. Which is certainly how some of the commentaries look at it. That our job is to, is to put in the effort. That's all God can expect from us. Success or not success is God's problem. Our job is to put in the right effort. Which I'm, I'm into because my daughter has to write a report uh, about that concept. Or that was the idea that I picked because I really write it. I don't write it. I just do the research and put all the pieces together and help her put it together. And I give her all her cards or she writes all her cards and then she does the final draft. So I've done this report in 12th grade. Oh, three times already. Wow. I'm getting very good at this report. The only problem is that the teacher remembers all the stuff I wrote. So I can't pull out the old versions. Not only does the teacher remember how what I wrote, she actually knows how I do it. So she announces to the class already how I help my daughter, and this is the way she wants them to do the project. So, But nobody else calls me. I'm, I'm safe on that one. Anyways, so there's a very interesting verse that keeps getting repeated over and over and over. As a matter of fact, it's repeated 18 times. Um, they put the ark together like God commanded. They put the table with the showbread where it belonged, like God commanded. They set up the menorah, like God commanded. They put up the beams, like God commanded. 18 times. So the question is, is if there's anything magical, that's not a good word, is there anything about the number 18 is number one? And forget the number. Why is it important to repeat it over and over and over and over again? That's, that's the more important question. So the commentaries explain like this. The, the tabernacle is, uh, is the process of God forgiving the Jewish people for the golden calf. What was really the main problem by the golden calf? The people were lost. They thought Moses was dead. 
They thought they needed a conduit between them and God to help them travel to the land of Israel. So they did, the Jewish people did what they thought was right. They went to Aaron. They didn't ask him, what should we do? They told him what they thought was the right thing to do. So whenever a person does something wrong, the way to correct it is really to do the opposite. So if what I did wrong was, was or the Jewish people did wrong, was that they, they made that golden calf because they thought it was the right thing to do, then the best way to correct that is when we build the tabernacle, nothing on our own. We are not being creative. We are going to do exactly what God says. So therefore, every single step along the way, they did it like God commanded. They did it like God, maybe like God commanded Moses. Like God commanded Moses, like God commanded Moses, like God commanded Moses, over and over and over and over again. And that becomes the forgiveness because you've learned your lesson. You thought you're supposed to do what you think is right. And the answer is no. I do exactly what Moses tells me to do. As an aside, they explain even more that there's very little details written about how to build everything. We have some of the instructions, but very little. Most of it was going to be by heart, what Moses told us. So therefore, included in the actual building is the understanding that there's what we call the written law and the oral law, and Moses giving us the oral law with all the details of how things should be built. So I see my time is running up. Here comes my music. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Nora Gold, publisher, author of the Jewish fiction. We're going to learn about Jewish fiction. We're going to learn about raising children. So hold through the break. We're going to be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. <laughs> I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now, we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activities the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. Just a tree, then who am I? 
working on our guests. So while we're working to make sure the phone lines are connected all the way to Canada, um, let's just continue what we're talking about. So we said that the Jewish people are doing what they're told is the correct thing to do. The exact message from Moses um, through God, right? God tells Moses exactly how to build it, and we follow directions exactly. We don't become creative. We don't try our own ideas. We do exactly what Moses told us to do. Now, there happened to be something else interesting about the number 18. Um, hopefully, most of you are familiar. Um, in the prayers, there is something called the, the Shemona Esrei, which, by the way, means 18. There is the, um, in the prayers, we stand quietly, people shake back and forth, and there's actually 18, there's really 19, but there's 18 blessings that we say. We start out uh, praising God, then we go into personal requests, um, then we talk about bringing the Messiah, then we thank God, and then we step out. And by Orthodox people, that's done three times a day. So that magic number 18... That magic number 18 is done three times a day, and the the number 18, the, the Talmud talks about different possibilities, but the Talmud talks about on the number 18, the, the re, one of the reasons the rabbi specifically cho, uh, chose, I'm sorry, 18 blessings is because in this week's Torah portion, we have this concept of like God commanded Moses 18 times, therefore becomes a very important number. And we are not having success getting through this number. Do you wanna you wanna check my phone? You wanna call my phone? You call my phone. I'll give you the number. See if it goes through. It should work. Look at that. Here we go. So we're gonna give Angel my phone and give it a shot on the number. See what happens. Anyways, where was I? Oh, so it's about numbers. So here's a number. Another fascinating number. And that's the number 100. I told you you have these big beams that are held up. Each beam is held up by two silver sockets. Again, the sockets are big. I don't see how it really would work. But these are humongous silver sockets. Under each beam is actually two silver sockets. Um, so there's 48 beams, grand total of 96 sockets. And then there's four other posts that also have a single um, socket on them, and um, and that gives you a grand total of 100. So the question is, what is so important about this magic number 100? So let's take it slow. If we imagine that these silver sockets are supporting the this humongous building, but you have these silver sockets that are supporting the building of the tabernacle, and because of this number of support, we actually learn a very fascinating law. And that law is the law of blessings. So Jewish people, Orthodox people, are making blessings all day long. All day long they're making, uh, they're making uh, blessings, they, um, whether it's on food, whether it's in prayer, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, on, a, uh, on a mitzvah, on a command— all these different things are, um, are, are blessings, and King David said that a person should make 100 blessings a day. It seems there was a, there was a plague that was going on, and they were trying to figure out how to rectify it and to put a stop to it, and King David came up with the idea that we should always be making 100. 
hundred blessings every day. Now, what's interesting is during the week, for somebody who prays three times a day, it's pretty easy. Between a couple meals and uh, prayers and then uh, yeah, a few other things along the way, really, it's an easy number. The interesting thing is that on the Sabbath, the, uh, the prayers are shorter. So it's a little bit harder to get to 100, and the rabbis discuss different ways to get to 100. On fast days, it's harder because we're not eating meals. So there's different ways around that, how you can figure out. But there are actually people that work very hard to make sure they make 100 blessings, and that number 100, again, comes from the sockets. So, um, so I think we're getting closer to our guests, and I really got to—okay, so— so many things I wanted to talk about. But um, here we go. Let's, a few more points as we're getting closer to our guest. Now they don't have a phone, no one can harass me. So um, there, there's another point we want, and that is when was the tabernacle built? The tabernacle um, was actually completed on Hanukkah, which would be the 25th of Kislev. However, it wasn't built, it wasn't officially built we're good? We are good. We're going to get back. So, after a little bit of technical difficulties, we are joined by Nora Gold, publisher and editor of the literary journal JewishFiction.net, author of three novels, and winner of two Canadian Jewish Book Awards. Uh, Nora, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Oh, it is my pleasure, and I'm glad we figured out how to get you on the phone. <laughs> so much. Probably I gave them the wrong phone number, which wouldn't be uh, surprising. So before we get this started, who is Nora Gold? Well, I'm someone like many people who have had many different gilgulim um, uh, or, or, you know, elements to my life. I was a social worker. I was a social work professor. And I've always written fiction, so at a certain point I decided that I wanted to leave full-time academic life so that I could write full-time. So starting with the new millennium on January 1st, 2000, that's what I've done. And I've been writing fiction full-time ever since. Amazing. And we're going to talk what is Jewish fiction and why you like to write Jewish fiction. But actually, I wanted to start with something else. So we were talking um, a couple weeks ago about your son. Yes. And you told me that you raised your son to be proud he's Jewish. Yes. So my first question is, how did you do that? Uh, <laughs> well, as an educator yourself, you know that education starts in the home. And both my husband and I are very proud Jews and very involved Jews, and we also have a very strong relationship to Israel. We spent a year there. We are there at least two or three times a year. So my son grew up in that kind of a home. Um, I say that not to brag because some people don't have the ability to offer that to their child, but I'm sure that was um, a big influence on him. And um, yeah, he, he's very, very, uh, really passionate about being Jewish and helping to share how beautiful that is with other people. Fantastic. Now we're going to take it one step further because we were talking about a Jewish education. Yes. And we discussed, um, we discussed that you sent your son to, I don't remember which school in Toronto, but you sent him to a, to a Jewish day school. Yes. And... Um, 
and we know it's expensive, but in your in your opinion, in your feeling, you know, what role does a Jewish education play in making sure that children feel good about being Jewish? Well, of course, there's an obvious answer and a less obvious answer. I mean, obviously, we highly value Jewish education because, as you said, it's extremely expensive, and uh, you have to be very committed to to support that. Um, my son's Jewish education was good, but it was complicated because the school he went to didn't share exactly the same values as our family, and so we had to talk a lot about different ways of understanding Judaism and living within Judaism. And I think actually, in a way, that was a very positive thing because it brought a lot of depth into his thinking and his understanding of community as something that isn't monolithic, but there are many different streams within a community, and we're still one community. And I think that's a lesson that... um, Many people don't really have. They they think that you know Jews like me are the real Jews, and other people aren't you know the right kind of Jews. And and we we've exposed him to to every kind of Jew and every kind of Judaism. And so he has a a real love of the entire community, and not just the kind of Jews that went to his school, and not just the kinds of Jews who share his points of view. Um, So I think his Jewish education was crucial. Of course, that also included his summer camp. It wasn't just, you know, it was was the the whole totality, not just school, of course. So you use much bigger words as a writer. I would have said the whole package, but totality is a much, much <laughs> better word. It is the whole package. It, it is, is the whole package. package. So uh, the bottom line is, in your humble opinion, it worked. Uh, it worked, but not, of course it worked. And, of course, we, we, we were very committed to him having a Jewish education, and we really believe in Jewish education. So there's no question about that. Okay, good. I, it was just something that I, I, I threw out there. I, I, I enjoyed having that part of the conversation. We're gonna don't worry. We're gonna get into all the fiction stuff soon. No, it's I fine. Hope. It's fine. This is all. This is all related. And, and I think it's. I actually think that talking about Jewish education, in the broadest sense, is very important because so many Jews, young Jews especially nowadays, are very alienated from Jewish life, and they really don't know that they're Jewish, and they're not particularly proud of of it when they do think about it. And I think that the more paths we can offer them to to loving Judaism and loving themselves as Jews and being passionate about the whole community, the more you can offer, the better, you know. And fiction and the arts is, is one more tool in the package, you know. And that is exactly what I'm going to be getting into, but probably after our break, because I have about 30 seconds. But I'm going to get you prepared for what I want when we come back from the break. And it's really very simple. And you really just uh, alluded to it. Um, You're very involved in Jewish fiction. And first of all, we need to know what is Jewish fiction. And I also know that you believe that that Jewish fiction will help people feel more connected to their, if Jewishness is a word, that's what I'm looking for. But there's my music. We are being joined by Nora Gold. Uh, and we're going to continue our conversation. So please hold through the break. You listen to Rabbi Tzuyam. Let's talk Torah. And we'll be right back. 
I'll tell you what happened. Good day, Morty. I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market all by the push of a button Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 subcontractor of the year from the Home Builders Association Tarno knows doors Tarno knows doors Surfing the internet can be good for your brain especially if you're getting up there in years UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back with Nora Gold. And I want to make sure I get this right. You are the publisher and editor of literary journal JewishFiction.net. Yes, it's an online literary journal, free of charge, called JewishFiction.net. Oh, so it's called Jewish Fiction, so people want to find it, JewishFiction.net. Yes, www.JewishFiction.net. So, perfect. So now... The the first question is, what is Jewish fiction? <laughs> and does it just mean that somebody's name is Jewish and their mother was Jewish and they, I don't know, have gefilte fish Friday night? Does that make it a Jewish fiction story? No, it does not. That is an excellent question, and it is a question that has been much discussed and debated. There are hundreds of books probably on this topic. Um Jewish fiction, there are many, of course, many, many different answers to the question. My answer uh, is that Jewish fiction is fiction where there is an element that is so essential that is Jewish that if you take it out, nothing is left. So, for example, if you have a, a love story and the two characters happen to be Jewish, that's not a Jewish, that's not Jewish fiction in my mind. And with the journal I published, JewishFiction.net, we don't consider, we don't accept stories like that. Um, there are also stories where people think that if they throw in, you know, a knish um, and the people are eating Jewish food, that that's a Jewish story. And to me, that's not a Jewish story. It's just sort of culinary Judaism or something. So to use an example from one of my books, Fields of Exile, which was about anti israelism on campus you know if you took out 
that element, then there'd be nothing left of the book at all. So that's what I mean by Jewish fiction, something that deals with a Jewish issue or topic that, um, where that is really the core of, of the story. So, in other words, when you're involved with Jewish fiction, you want a lesson to be taught that is a Jewish lesson or something along those lines? That's what you're looking for? Well, I don't think so much in terms of lessons. Um, I think sometimes you can learn from literature, and sometimes um, it's not exactly a lesson. You know, the research shows, actually, that reading good fiction changes a person. They did research and they found that people who read good fiction actually are more empathic and kinder. That if you get someone to read good fiction, they change. Because what fiction does is it it opens you to the thoughts and feelings of other people in a very deep way. So I think inevitably you, you learn things. You know, you could learn what it's like to be a murderer, but that's that's not the kind of lesson I don't think that you have in mind. No, um, I don't think so. No, no. But I think I think one inevitably learns from Jewish literature. And to answer the other part of your question, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to write excellent Jewish literature. There, there are some fabulous um, Holocaust novels and stories, for example, written by non-Jews who seem to understand... Um, understand beautifully what what needs to be said and how it should be said in this particular book. So it's very powerful. Fiction is extremely powerful. And I think once you know that, you can harness this power for positive ends. And one of the things that, that uh, you know, we were talking about education, I think it's really interesting to see how many Young people or, or people, older people, you know, baby boomers have never even heard of Jewish literature. So they, they love reading fiction. They were exposed to English literature, say, and they, they love it. Some of them made a career in English literature, which is great. But they never encountered the richness that exists in Jewish literature, in Yiddish literature, in Hebrew literature, in Jewish literature around the world. I mean, we've published stories that were originally written in 15 languages, and you're, you're, you have a completely different sense of the richness and diversity and commonalities around the world for Jews when you read a story set in Croatia or Denmark or Poland or France, and it's all Jewish fiction. All amazing. So uh, we talked about the arts. You yourself talk about arts. We've had artists on before and musicians. And one theme I think that goes through what we consider artistic is is the power of that medium, whether you're you're making a picture and you want to get a message across, whether you're creating a symphony and you want to get the message across. And you're really saying the same thing when it comes to writing fiction, that it is a it is art, and if it's used, uh, probably no matter how it's used, but hopefully if it's used properly, um, it's really powerful to get across the author's feelings, thoughts. Do I am I catching on? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I think everything that I've been saying about the power of fiction is true of, of music and and the visual arts and theater. Absolutely. I think also, you know, since 
since we're all interested in Jewish education and building Jewish identity and commitment, um, I think it's a really important way to, um, an important gift to offer, especially to young people. You know, there's also research showing that, that people are biologically hardwired, so to speak, for stories, so that the brain, you know, we're not always very good at remembering facts, but we can remember a story. And there's so many young Jews who are alienated from the Jewish community and from themselves. And Jewish fiction really can offer them a way in. Um, you know, it's amazing how many times people have written to me after reading one of my books or reading a story in JewishFiction.net and saying that it really changed the way they thought or felt about life, including themselves, that to be part, they understood all of a sudden that there's this whole Jewish world that has a place for them. You know, if I'm people who have felt quite uh, distant for whatever reason. And I think this is because reading fiction is a very deep personal experience. But at the same time, it links you to other people and places and communities. Yeah, you know, it's, it, I always tell my kids, I, when I read you know, the stories I remember growing up or the fiction that I would read, I would never want to see the movie because I once I see the movie, now you created all the pictures in my head, and all my imagination is gone. I feel exactly the same way. When I really love a book, sometimes people kind of, you know, pressure me and say, no, 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 you got to see the movie. And it, I find it so, I, I try to understand, I mean, I do understand it's a different medium, but it's actually a very conflictual experience, exactly the way you say it. So as our time is rolling, um, I did say we talk about your books. You've authored three books. One, you gave us a little bit of information. That's called Fields of Exile. Yes. Just, uh, just tell us quickly, what were you trying to accomplish in the book? What's the book about? Why did you write it? Well, that was the first, and actually it's still the only novel written about anti-Semitism and anti-Israelism on campuses today. And I wrote it because I was so upset about the topic and because... I felt that a novel would have more power than writing not a nonfiction book about it. And I, I do a lot of speaking at conferences and at universities. And actually, I've been told that it has really opened the minds and hearts of quite a few people, which Jews and non-Jews, primarily aimed at non-Jews. And, of course, that's been a source of great satisfaction for me. Yes, it must be amazing. In other words, it really, now that I'm thinking about it more and more, if you just tell me that, oh, that's anti-Semitic or, or you're, I'm going to prove to you you're wrong, my brain is not open. I'm not going to listen to you. But if I'm reading a story and I appreciate the characters and I feel for the character, you've opened up my brain. Now that you've opened that's up my brain, I can pour everything right in. It's a little that's sneaky. exactly right. That's exactly, exactly right. So I think of it almost as a magic kind of power. I mean, there's nothing else that will get you to just open yourself deeply to another person without any defenses. Your defenses drop, and you can be written on. You can be changed. I think you put it perfectly. Wow, that's really amazing. So I know you have two other books. I don't have so much time. You pick one okay. and tell me what it's about. Well, I can, I can tell you about them in one sentence, both Marrow and Other Stories, which was the first one, was stories about Jewish women, some of them relating to Israel. 
My most recent novel, The Dead Man, is set in Israel, and it's a story about a musician who's a, a woman composer who is um, in love with Israel and in love with somebody there. It's, it's a love story. And it must be completely Jewish, because if we took the Jewishness out, then there'd be nothing left to the story. That is really a fascinating oh, well idea. Said. Yes, See? he's a composer of Jewish music. Right, you taught me the whole thing. So, Nora, <laughs> my time is almost up, but if you would like to leave us with something, and again, remind us how we can find your books and, and check out the jewishfiction.net, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, you can buy my books on Amazon. And JewishFiction.net, which now has readers in 140 countries, we've published very famous writers like Elie Wiesel and Aaron Applefeld, but we always leave at least half of the journal for new writers. And we're always looking for first-rate Jewish-themed fiction. So listeners, if you want to send us your work, you can find us at www.JewishFiction.net. And if you're not a writer, you can sign up for free and you can read all of our 21 issues anytime you want on your computer or your phone. Nora, thank you so much for joining us. This was very enlightening. I learned a lot. I love learning. And you had a lot of great information. You know, the Purim holiday is coming. Have a happy and healthy Purim. And I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. And Chag Sameach to you, too, and to all of your listeners. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye. I hope we learned a lot on that one. And in my, oh, minute or so, um, I wanted to give a quick, let's see if I can give an overview. And I was, this week is the last uh, part of the story of Exodus. That was the first book is Genesis. Um, we are finishing the book of Exodus this week. As I told you when we started the book of Exodus— if Genesis is the creation of the world, Exodus is the, is the creation of the Jewish people. And I think I can get it really fast. Here we go. Jewish people go down to Egypt. They become slaves. Uh, Moses has to run away. Moses comes back. God tells them to do the ten plagues. We go out of, the, out of Egypt. We then go in the desert. We, get, we cross the Red Sea. Miracles. We get the Torah. Uh, then, of course, we sin, we do the golden calf, and then we're given the opportunity for forgiveness by building the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is complete, God's presence comes down into the Jewish people. So we started out as slaves, but we, the end goal was that we should, should appreciate, we should feel, we should see God's presence. That was the whole point. We become God's people. We... We want to be connected. We want to experience God, see God, have, have what we see and what we feel affect us as people. So we've gone from slaves at the very beginning to not only being free people. Free people is not enough. So we're free. We're freed slaves. There's been a lot of countries, America included, where there's freed slaves. It's not enough to be freed slaves. We became a nation, and we became God's nation, and we were able to bring God's presence down into the tabernacle. And that's really what finalized us as the Jewish nation, because now we have everything we, act, we asked for. The only change will be when we eventually get to the land of Israel and we go into the land of Israel and we build a temple. So the temple's where God's presence is and was. And that's what we had to do to go visit the temple three times a year. 
And my music is playing again. So when we come back, I have an amazing story that I heard early this week. I'm going to share that story with you. we got a word of the week. So hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzu and Let's Talk Torah. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Fridays, Podquesters. See you there. Times we see a guy running down to first base, and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. umped. I mean, that's the, get umped. <laughs> I can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Yep, what's up? This is your boy, Walter Jones, also known as Zach, the original Black Ranger, and you are geeking out with Geek Taming Weekly at New Radio Media. It's worth the time. The Bee Gees song, Staying Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there. And it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute, which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The keys to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. To change my state of mind And we're back And I hope you appreciated all we learned about fiction and writing And the power of an author And that's why I know some people tell me That they don't like sometimes the different books their children will read Because they do understand that books have power And you're putting a lot of different ideas into whether it's adults' heads or children's heads, it's powerful. It's really quite fascinating. Well, Rabbi Jonas and Goldson can't join us this week, so we're going to go straight to our poster. If Kelsey is ready, Kelsey is ready. So we are up to our, I believe, 16th poster, and the letter is Ayin. And Ayin is, uh, it's got like those two uh, branches sticking up, connected to a base on the bottom. It is an interesting letter. It does not make its own sound. It, it's important uh, when we, in the conjugation of words, when we create words, we need that letter, but it does not make its own sound. The only sound it can make is when there's something called the nakuda, dots or dashes underneath it, the ah, uh, ah, uh, e, uh, like vowels. It is almost used as a vowel letter. It's not a vowel. But it can be used as a vowel letter for pronunciation purposes. But again, it does have its own purpose because it changes the word. So this week's word I thought of is unov. And unov means humble. Now, humble, I was speaking to a friend uh, yesterday. Humble doesn't mean you're a schmata. A schmata means you're like a dish towel that's been wrung out. Um, 
an anna of a humble person means that he recognizes that he's nothing and it's all coming from God. All my ability, everything I do, everything I accomplish, whether you like to hear this or not, is all coming from God. When I understand that, so it doesn't matter what we're describing. So I hit a baseball 400 feet, but God gave me all that power. So it's not me anymore. Or I closed the deal. Or I gave this fantastic lecture. Or I gave an amazing podcast, right? So all these things, we're all putting in the effort. We talked about very early in the show. We put in the effort. But at the end of the day, it's God who does the whole thing. So a humble person recognizes that. A haughty person thinks it's all me. And that's why nobody really likes to be around haughty people who say it's all me. They like the humble person who doesn't... Everybody knows what you accomplished, right? But when you brag about it, so then it's you and it's not God, it's you and that's it. So no one has patience for it. Anyways, here's an amazing story that uh, I heard this week. I think it's been making the rounds, but if you didn't hear it, you're going to love it. So there's a, a lady in a grocery store, uh, a, a, a basket full, full to the brim with all her food, and she checks out, and the bill uh, comes up, and I don't know, whatever the bill was, um, she hands her credit card to the cashier, and the cashier swipes the credit card, and it's declined. You've probably seen people like that. I've had a credit card that, that just wasn't read properly, but this lady knew that the reason the credit card was declined is because she was well overdrawn. So she says, oh, I, I guess my credit card's not working. Um, maybe you could put it on my bill. You know, in a Kroger's, that's not happening. But in, in little mom-and-pop grocery stores that you have in New York, I'm sure you have in other cities, they they have, uh, like, a, a ledger. And they'll do you a favor. If you don't have money, they'll, they'll let you have a running bill as long as you pay the bill every once in a while. Anyways, this lady obviously had such a large bill that there was a note on the ledger and said, this lady has no more credit. It's too big. So there's a man standing behind her in line. So he quietly hands his credit card to the, to the cashier and says, do me a favor, run my card, just pay her bill, pay the groceries here, and move on. Okay, she's very appreciative. She thanks him. She thanks him. Look, the guy gave her charity. Right? She was stuck. She needs groceries. Take care of her kids. And she goes on her way, and now the man runs his own um, grocery cart, and he gets his groceries, and then he says to the cashier, um, how much is on her ledger? So the cashier says about $2,000. So the, this man says, do me a favor, add $2,000 to my credit card when you swipe it and wipe out her bill. So the cashier says, no problem. You want to pay? No problem. So, which is really amazing. Now, again, he's obviously a man of means, right? He can afford it. I don't know if, uh, if you and I could always afford such a gift. But um, the question is, what do you take away from such a person? Certainly, he's a very good person He's a very kind person. He's a very thoughtful person. Um, but think about it, right? Not only did he pay her first grocery order, which she knew about, but she clearly is not going to know that he paid her full grocery bill, everything she owed. So now she can come back. Yes, she's going to rack up the bill again. He's not coming back every week to pay her bill. But what do you learn from the story? So I, I've heard different takes what people feel. And one of them is the idea of not just being kind and not just doing kindness, but do you have the ability to do kindness in a natural way where you're not expecting anything? Going back to our idea of being humble or being haughty, 
right? A humble person does stuff, and it's just part of life. He just moves on, and he, he does the next good deed. And he's not waiting for the applause. He's not waiting for the fanfare. He just moves along and does a kindness here, a kindness there, helps this person, but he's not expecting anything back. And he even likes it when nobody even knows what he's doing, except, obviously, some people figured out the story. Can't tell you they did that part. But but that's the that's I think part of the lesson. Obviously, to be kind is always a beautiful lesson. But if we could take away that when we can be kind, when we can do good things, and it becomes part of our nature, that our nature says, "Be a good person." How can you help this person? What can I do over here? What can I do over there? That's really the, that's the ultimate kindness. That if the world would be filled with people. They would just be kind for kindness sake just because without expecting anything. What a wonderful world, world we would live in. But as always, our time is up. We've had a fantastic show. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor, listeners. You know, I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team today. Lots of hard work. Greatly appreciated. Tony, Kelsey, Zach, Angel, Ethan. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk to our new radio media. Until next week, don't forget to think about it.